time for Coffee with the Chicken Ladies, a podcast for people who love chickens. Hey, everybody, and welcome. It's Chrissy and Holly from Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. We're here, and this is episode number 26 of our podcast, where we talk about everything chicken, family, fun, and more chickens. More chickens. We drink a ton of coffee. I'm talking a ton. But most importantly, we hug chickens every day. We hug and kiss them too. Don't forget. We brew coffee from a little coffee house here in Bel Air, Maryland. Coffee, coffee. Holly, and what kind of coffee are we brewing today? Salted caramel again. Oh, yeah. That's one of our faves. It's so good. If you're a fan of wonderful coffee, scrumptious pastries, and all types of goodies, and you're a local, head on over to Coffee Coffee. You will not be disappointed. Didn't they just hit a big anniversary? I think so. Like 30-year anniversary or something? It's been there for a while. Yeah. Definitely. Congratulations, Coffee Coffee. Yes. We love your coffee. Uh Yeah. Holly Ann, how are you today? Christina Renee, I am fine (laughs) today. Good. You remember how you were talking about sharing your llamas and alpacas the other day? Yes, I was. Well, I got to share three Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. Did they spit on you? (laughs) They don't. (laughs) But I'm telling you, their hair and fur... Go in places that you don't want it to Oh, go I do to. know. I, the same thing happens with the llamas and alpacas. You are like, how? How does yeah, this hair migrate? So I have like surgical grade clippers that uh-huh. I've bought over the years. Yeah. And I just kind of replace the blades. Okay. I take them down to like, I use a 10, which takes them like, it leaves like. Half an inch or so. Not even that. Okay. I mean, they look super cute. You give them a buzz. A buzz. <laughs> <laughs> but three cavies and shedding. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, I know. It's bad. Uh-huh. Well, you have rumors, so you know about shedding. He, he sheds, too. He's shepherd the size of three of your cats. <laughs> I know. So we're about dealing with the same kind of t- amount of hair there. Yeah. So Sammy's good. The little one's good. Yeah. You can just take him, clip him down. He goes. He runs off. Uh-huh. But the other two, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> you got to clip one foot, then give him a break. Oh, for heaven's sake. Take him outside to pee because he's all hyper. Bring him back in. Clip another foot. <laughs> this is an ordeal. An ordeal. And in between, well, Sophia holds them. Okay. And we have Ella. She sweeps the hair up. So uh-huh. it's like <laughs> it's like an ordeal. Yeah. And then when they're all clipped down, which is like 10,000 hours later, <laughs> you put all three of them in a bathtub together. Okay. And we each take a dog and bathe the dog. What, to get, like, the excess hair off of them? Well, t- you know, they got to feel clean Okay, and gotcha. Else. Yeah. So that's coming up. I am eternally grateful I don't have to put a llama or alpaca in a bathtub. After that would I be them. so hilarious. That could be a book. If you put a llama in the bathtub, <laughs> he'll ask you for the soap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, being a retired librarian, I will tell you that cracks me up. But back when I had a bunch of alpacas, I would have a kitty pull out for them in the summer. Oh, yeah. And two of them would fight over it. It was Calvin and eBay. And eBay? Did you never meet eBay? I did not meet eBay. eBay was this little dark brown. I, the breeder named him. I didn't name yeah. him. Yeah. He was this little dark brown alpaca. I called him the chocolate drop. He was the cutest thing. We lost him four years ago, five years ago. They start to run together after a while. I know. That's the sad part. Yeah, that part's tough. But he was a character. And he and his buddy Calvin, who was a great big white alpaca, would fight, and I mean fight, over this kiddie pool. They would fall into it. They would give me a heart attack. Those oh were the my days God. when I was younger and more limber. I know. Like, when I worked 
in the animal hospitals, I had started clipping dogs. I remember, yeah. Remember, I would take Cookie in and I would I would clip her down. Yeah. And that's where I would do it because I would use our clippers at, at work. Cookie was your Cocker Spaniel when we were in high school. Yes. Uh-huh. So I would take her in and clip her all the way down. And I would wait till I check. I would punch out from work and yeah. then clip her and use the stuff at work. So everyone started noticing like, wow, you do a great job uh-huh. clipping these animals. So everybody, then they started pimping everybody. Oh, we have a tech here who can clip animals all oh, the way down. Oh, good heavens. I cannot tell you the number of dogs and cats that I've clipped all the way down. Uh-huh. And the days I drove home, like, scratching oh, everywhere. Know. It's awful. From the hair in your bra, everywhere. It's everywhere. It really is. And then you can't get relief until you get in the shower. No. You're like, it's not coming off. So, yeah. I'm like, not it's looking forward to your hands. To it's on your face. You just can't get rid of it. And Sophia keeps saying, when are we going to do it, Mom? And I'm like, Ugh. I'm not looking forward to it. And last year, we had nothing else to do. Right. So we did it in April. Uh-huh. And they were like, they needed sweaters because it was still chilly. Yeah. And yeah. they were like, what the heck are you doing? I'm like, I can't take this hair. <laughs> and we didn't really have much going on with COVID. We're a so little busier now. We're a lot busier now. A little busier. So yeah. They're shedding a little bit more. Yeah. This is a note for myself and actually everybody. Don't forget box fans this year. If you're in a really hot area in the summer, chickens can really, really benefit from those. I need to buy an extra one or two, I think, to set up back there. Because I have two now. Yeah. But I think I want to do some extra box fans back there. Probably not a bad idea. Now we're going to move on to our... (laughs) Breed... I'm going to run out of these jingles, I'm telling you. One can only imagine when you'll run out. You're not going to want me to run out because then you're going to be like, we're here with Breed Spotlight. And I'm going to be like, where is the excitement in this? One of us has to be crazy. That's me. Okay. You're not as crazy as me. I'm quietly crazier than you, (laughs) but it's very quiet. (laughs) Okay. So this week we're going to do the Jersey Giant. In the name, we know instantly two things about this chicken. They're from Jersey. (laughs) And they're giant. (laughs) It's one of the common names that we can tell something from the name. We've got some seriously intellectual stuff going on over here. (laughs) (laughs) The Jersey Giant is the largest breed of chicken. It is quite large. Yeah. Sometimes you see that video was on YouTube a while ago of the Brahma rooster popping out of the coop. It's all about angles. It is all about angles. And I will tell you this. The Jersey Giant is still the bigger chicken. Well, there's a reason why there's giant in the name. Because they're giant. Yes. And those types of pictures, a lot of times they're holding these big roosters up and out. And out, yeah. Yeah, you, so, you can definitely distort your angles that way. Yeah. So the Jersey Giant is another American classic breed. As we said, they were developed in New Jersey by the Black Brothers, John and Thomas. It took them roughly a 20-year span to develop the breed from 1879 to 1890. They developed them by repeated crossings of, these are all fabulous breeds, Black Javas, Dark Brahmas, and Black Langshans. And also very large breeds. Very large breeds, absolutely. The Black Brothers were allegedly trying to create a breed of chicken that rivaled the turkey in size as a table bird. I think the only part that will rival the turkey are the roos. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the hens are going to be as big as a male turkey. No, the Black Jersey Giant roosters are typically between 12 and 15 pounds. And let's just say turkeys can be way larger. Well, you know, back in the 1890s... The turkey might have been smaller. Yeah, I would imagine... 
industrial turkey farming wasn't yeah. the same as it is now. Exactly. They would have been using heritage breeds that were smaller and probably matured later. So 15 probably was a, a good large turkey size. Probably. It probably was. Now, the Jersey Giants do grow quickly. Like the frame grows quickly, but then it takes them months to put on the weight and fill out the frame. Which is the reason why you had problems with Ricardo at one Probably, point yeah. with vitamin deficiency because he was growing so fast. Right. And I will say that they were hatchery stock. I bought them at the local feed store mm-hmm. on a whim because I'd always like the breed. I don't think you'd find that if you got really good quality stock from a breeder, mm-hmm. but it's just something that happened with Ricardo. And he was 15 pounds on the day he died. Yeah. He was a massive rooster. He was very large. Yeah, he really was. The first time you saw him, I just remember your face. You were like, his feet, the size of his feet. His feet were not only big, but thick. Yeah. Like massive. Yes. I never went in that run as long as he was there. Right. Like I was not going to. There is no no way. Of course not. He was built to protect. Yes. And he did. And he did. Yeah. I mean, he took it too far. Yeah. Again, they grow quickly, but then it takes them a while to put on the weight and fill out their frame. So clearly the Jersey Giant never really caught on as a turkey replacement, though they are regarded as a dual purpose bird. I guess I could see that, but they are very sweet birds. So I They are. They really are. I love the personalities. The hens are like eight to ten pounds. And your hens seem to be a little smaller. Esther is the biggest of my hens. Yeah. I would guess she's maybe eight pounds tops. Yeah. Tops. I said this when we did the Brahmas. I don't think that the hatchery stock reached the sizes that are outlined in the standards of perfection. Yeah, and I think your Brahma hens are bigger than your Jersey Giant hens. They might be. They're very fluffy. Now, I'll tell you who's bigger than your Jersey Giant hens are Bubbles and Buttercup. Yes, your Orpingtons are definitely bigger. Which is weird to me. Yeah. But they are, like, to me, much bigger, like heavier. Yeah, they definitely are. You're right. My Jersey Giant hens are not giants. They're well, it's not... kind of like my Lavender Orpingtons. Yeah. Well, They're not the size. size of the Buff Orpingtons exactly. either. Right. So some of this just comes down to the genetics. If they've been bred carelessly. They lose their standard of yeah, perfection. the standards and the confirmation hasn't been maintained. Then, yeah, you end up with a smaller bird. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the Jersey Giant is currently on the Livestock Conservancy's watch list. That gets me because I always think that that's a pretty popular chicken. They're a reasonably popular chicken. Yeah, I think maybe in some parts of the country they're more popular than others. I've always said this. I think that some breeds are regional. Yeah, definitely. So Even now they're still regional. Yeah. Like when we're talking to Christina in LA and she was talking about the Leghorn, uh, you know the name of it. Oh, the California Whites. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they're not here. No, I have not seen them around here. No. no. So I, when she said that, and I was like, you know what? I think there are regional different breeds that are more popular in different areas. What I do know is they are really beautiful <laughs> birds. They are beautiful. They have that green tinge to their feathers, which are very yeah, pretty. The bottle green feather sheen. Black is the most common color. That's where you see that bottle green sheen. They're, they probably inherited that from the Javas. Right. They do have a large single comb. They have black legs with a yellow sole. Okay. They're slow maturing. Like we said before, their frame gets big, but they're slow maturing. To fill out. Exactly. And the pullets also will start laying around eight months. Which is heritage breed timing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. It's definitely later. The hens are good layers of very large brown eggs. So what do you think they're extra large size? They're big. They're big eggs. I've never put them on a scale. But they, you got to bring one here. I have yeah, the egg scale. I should, yeah. And the funny thing there is my smallest Jersey hen is Ruthie, and she lays the biggest eggs. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's like sometimes like with Lucy, I see, she lays a really big egg yeah. once in a while, and I'm like, how did that come out? It's, it's really funny. Tiny. And they do lay a brown egg, but 
they lay on different shades of brown. Okay. Some of them are sort of a lighter pinkish color. One of the girls lays a really dark brown egg. I think that's Ruthie. And then Agatha Christie lays the most beautiful speckled eggs I've ever seen. Nice. Gorgeous speckled eggs. I love them. So we mentioned that big straight comb. Well, I'll just say that they are quite winter hardy and that they have a lot of body mass. You really have to watch that comb and waddles in the winter. The roosters especially have a really high comb and a lot of waddle. Yeah. So you really need to take precautions there. Well, the other thing I'm going to say is if you're going to get this chicken, you have to make provisions for a larger chicken. Yeah. So make sure that your coop, that you're anticipating a 8 to 15 pound bird. And if you have multiple, it's not going to be the same size coop as if you, if you have a bantam breed. They like, will take up more space, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I just want everyone to be aware that, yes, they're called Jersey Giants because they're very large. Yeah. And just to make those provisions. Right. You know, just try to get a bigger coop. But like you were saying, they're good foragers. Yeah, they are. And they're hardy. They're pretty healthy chickens. Just a note, even though it's summer, we're not thinking about this. I had a cozy coop heater in the Jersey's coop. Yeah, you did. Because Ricardo sustained a lot of damage on his comb and waddles when he was younger. Yeah, it's always good to be prepared. Exactly. And that's with doing all the right things in the coop. It just still got too cold. So the Black Jersey Giants were accepted into the American Poultry Association Standards of Perfections in 1922. Okay. The APA now also recognizes White Giants and Blue Giants. Okay, I've never seen them before. The blues are beautiful. They're really, really lovely. And there's also a blue-black splash, and it's really, really pretty. They're beautiful birds. They do go broody. Okay. I would say maybe half of the time. Have yours gone broody? Oh, yeah. Ruthie sat on a nest once for six full weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I got really worried. I was taking her out and putting her on the ground three times a day to eat. Oh, yeah. She was determined. And this is before, like you said about Fiona knowing about putting the eggs under. Yes, you put them under for 10 to 14 days and then you take them out okay. and it speeds up the process. Okay. And generally it happens when it's warm. So there's also a heat right. issue when they're in there. And if you're not trying to hatch eggs and they're in there and it's hot, you don't want them in there unnecessarily. Exactly. It wasn't good. And honestly, even though her eggs were fertilized, I did not want to breed Ricardo. <laughs> yeah. You're like, no babies, no babies. Well, you know, he was an aggressive rooster. That's not a rooster that I would want passing on his genes. I was going to say, genetically, he'll pass on some personality traits. Exactly. There is a National Jersey Giant Club. Yeah. It's the club website and it has lots of information. Yeah, it really does. If you're looking to breed Jersey Giants, I think this is definitely a breed where you want excellent breeding stock. Oh, yeah. Because it has to do with size. You want to you want to get the right size. The size, I think the personality, I think health issues, all oh, of yeah. those things. I just don't think it's a good idea to start a breeding program with birds from a farm supply store. Yeah. I mean, especially if they're supposed to be super large and you're starting off with a smaller bird. Right. That might not give you your standard of perfection that you're looking for. Some of them not even close. I mean, they're, yeah. they're in some cases, they're pounds lighter than oh, they yeah. should be. Well, that's what I always say about the lavenders. Yeah. They're so much smaller. Yeah, absolutely. So you can visit the Livestock Conservancy's breeder directory. You can check in with the National Jersey Giant Club's website. They okay. should list the breeders there. You can also get yourself a copy of the American Poultry Association Standards of Perfection. Yes. If you're trying to breed any of these breeds... It's really a good idea to have that as a benchmark. Yeah. And it's a standard of perfection, but, you know, you're not going to hit absolute perfection. No. It's that benchmark you should aim for. Yeah. I personally think, and I know I'm biased, 
because they're one of my favorite breeds. But yeah, I think the simplicity and grace of this breed means that confirmation flaws stand out really clearly. Oh, yeah, I agree. Like one of my most favorite breeds are the Buff Orpingtons. And if they're a very simplistic yeah. chicken, if there's a problem, you're going to notice you it. You do notice it. Absolutely. A little bit different than mottled or splash chickens and the they kind of all look different. Exactly. Yeah. But these simple and elegant chickens just... Yeah, yeah you really definitely shows. will notice it. And take personality into consideration. Like I was saying, Ricardo was big and absolutely gorgeous, but we just did not feel like we could hatch eggs from a rooster that had aggression issues. Oh, yeah, that's not a good thing. So overall, I don't know of a lot of bad things about Jersey Giants. Again, I'm biased. I love them, love them, <laughs> love them. Okay, so now that we're done talking about those Jersey Giants, those lovely girls that you have in your yard, I think it's time that we should have Coffee with the owner. Yeah. 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 Holly misses out on the yeah, and I'm joining in. <laughs> How are you doing? Oh, it's been a busy week. It's been a really, really busy week. You wait for broodies to brood. Nothing happens. There's a cold snap in the UK. And then all of a sudden, they all go at once. So Yay! it's been an incredibly busy week. I know. It's wonderful. So we can Yay. start talking about broody hens soon. We actually thought one of our Jersey Giant girls was going to go broody. She was starting to show some oh, early that signs. Would be amazing. Yes, but no. She's I would love to have Jersey Giants. I'm really they, quite jealous of your Jersey Giants. They're really fantastic hens. Pete is really getting to know them now that Ricardo is not in there to have stare downs with him. And I think he's really in love with my Agatha Christie. She never stops talking. I love she's, the name. <laughs> she's a great hen. She's not up to size. She's not up to standard size. For a Jersey Giant hen, she's definitely not big enough. But she lays the most beautiful speckled eggs. There's something special about that one chicken in your flock that gives you speckled eggs sometimes. You're yeah. like, yeah, here comes a speckled egg. She's a great girl. So do you have Jersey Giants in the UK? Oh, yeah. We've been thinking about getting some for quite a while. The only problem for us is they lay the same colored eggs as the Hawkingtons. Right. And that means we'd have to keep the different breeds separate, which we prefer them all mingling together. So the right. idea for us is to have breeds which lay different colored eggs. So right. we have discussed hatching some out and then just selling them all. Just getting them hatched, grow them to maturity, and then uh-huh. sell them before they start laying and we get confused with the egg colors. You'll fall in love with them. <laughs> you really them. are wonderful. Yeah. So before no, we... I'm sorry, but it, it, it might be a choice between the Jersey Giants and the Buff Hawkingtons. We're not having that. No. Okay. So before we move on to our roundtable with Fiona today, which is finding a vet, we want to announce that Fiona has a broody head, Miss Cinnamon. We want to find out how Cinnamon is doing. She is just getting used to her brood coop at the moment. So she brooded in her main coop in a normal place and we've just moved her to a brood coop and we're just making sure she's happy before she gets her first eggs. Okay. But she's a reliable broody. She does a great job. She'll be fantastic. So when will she be getting her first eggs? Tomorrow. That's so exciting. So as everybody knows, we've been waiting since we started speaking with Fiona for Miss Cinnamon or her friends to go broody so that we could follow her and talk about her every week and just give some updates on how she's doing. And Fiona is going to give the video counterparts over at English Country Life so you can watch Cinnamon and everything that's happening with her as we go along. Fiona, what breed of eggs are you going to be tucking under Miss Cinnamon? 
she's actually going to get buff hockington eggs so they are going okay. to be cinnamon and the rest of the flock's eggs okay fertilized by rama caesar cockerel so nice we have frankie as well who's also full and broody at the same time and both okay. frankie and cinnamon are getting eggs on the same day nice. we have got miss rowan who she's going to get her eggs on Monday, probably. We're going to give her a little bit longer because she's a first-year broody. So she's never gone through the process before. We're not quite sure. And then we have an old English pheasant fowl, too, little Halloumi, who's old broody, too. We're so excited. We're going to have to see some videos of her and her broody adventures, too. Oh, you should see little Halloumi trying to brood, cover herself as much as possible on these eggs. She's so small and she's trying to make herself so big. It's adorable. It really That is. sounds cute. Oh, that sounds adorable for sure. The other thing is, if everyone who's listening here knows about broody hens is be prepared for anything. We have an episode out. If something yes. goes wrong, all the things you should have on hand and those things can definitely happen. Incubator is a big one. In case something goes wrong, have that ready to go and just be ready for anything. We cannot wait to follow them. It's going to be so much fun. You want to add anything else, Fiona? I'm all right, actually. I think I think that's until we get into a full conversation about Cinnamon's first week with the eggs, I think that probably covers everything off. It's just, you know, as you said, before you embark on the process, have everything ready. Your podcast episode covers everything. And we've got an accompanying video on the YouTube channel to go with that too. Yes, check it out on English Country Life. You'll love it. So sometimes things can happen. You can be going along and have a health problem. So today's roundtable with Fiona is finding a vet, some ways to do this, and the importance of actually having a vet on hand even before you get the chickens. So do you want to start, Fiona? We were talking a little while ago, and you were telling us some really cool things in the UK that are happening with finding a vet. Well, things have changed since we started looking for a vet many years ago. And uh, I was looking the other day to see what resources were available now. The Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons has had a, a find a vet function for quite a while. And their search engine is actually really good, except for me. <laughs> the reason for that is they do allow you to select the type of animal you've got or the specialism you want. And one of the types of animals is clearly birds. So I ticked birds, loads of vets all over the UK, plenty to choose from except for where I live. Oh, no. That's not good. We need some vets there (laughs) near you. Well, there are vets still who obviously treat birds, but for whatever reason, they're not accredited to treat birds, or maybe they don't want to be listed, but they are listed for treating small animals. And of course, small animal vets treat parakeets, cockatiels, mm-hmm. budgerigars, pigeons, doves, you know, all sorts of birds that people have. So they are used to seeing birds. And most people, if you ring a veterinary surgeon uh, for small animals and say, do you treat birds? Most will say, absolutely, we'll see them. So that's probably the first port of call. But rather than say, I've got a chicken, say, do you treat birds? Exactly. So part of my background is working in an animal hospital for 15 years. I worked for two practices and one was a complete small animal practice. So any animal that walked in the door, the veterinarians there would attempt to treat. It didn't matter, size, whatever type. I brought a seagull to work one day <laughs> that I found injured on the really? road. I don't, yes. I don't know this story. Yes. <laughs> so on my way to work, 
I'm driving down the road and there's a seagull sitting right on the yellow line in the oh, middle. Geez. And it doesn't move. So I go to work and I'm like, five minutes back, there's a seagull. I'm going to go. I think it's injured. And they're like, you know, seagulls are mean. And I'm like, yeah, but I can't. It's just sitting in the middle of the road. So I grab leather gloves, a big box and like multiple towels. And I drive back up. It was by the mall. So oh, you geez. know where I'm talking That's about. A very busy spot. Yes. So wow. I stopped the car and stopped traffic in both directions. <laughs> <laughs> and I have this big towel, these huge leather gloves and a box. And this seagull was still there. Oh, poor thing. And it ended up having oh, a broken no. leg. Oh, geez. Yeah. So, I mean, it was like, ah, like going after me, twisting <laughs> its head and everything. Took it back. We splinted the leg. <laughs> we did everything <laughs> to this poor seagull and then sent it to a wildlife rescue once we stabilized. Yeah, it. yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Like, usually small animal, they're equipped to treat anything. Now, the second hospital where I worked was a dog and cat hospital. And usually that's in the name. You know, if it says dog and cat hospital, that's all they're going to treat. Yeah, generally. Yeah. yeah. But small animal vets usually will try to help you out as much as they can, for sure. I so want to go off at a tangent here again, because the seagull stories made me think about something that happened with me and a seagull many years ago. Go we ahead. had a ginger cat called Rambo. Okay. And Rambo was called Rambo for a reason. <laughs> I can only imagine. And one day, Rambo decided to bring a seagull in through the cat flap. Oh, my God. Once the seagull was through the cat flap and into the kitchen, the seagull no longer wanted to play dead. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Now, you can imagine what happened then. So uh, if you've ever thought that a chicken can produce a ridiculous amount of poop, you ain't seen nothing where a seagull is concerned. (laughs) And my entire house was covered in seagull poop. That's the thing. Seagulls are not (laughs) nice. No No offense to any seagulls, but they're like (laughs) hardcore. They're like going after you. So I can only imagine one being stuck in your house and trying to catch it. Holy cow. How did you finally get it? Stories for this cat. Well, we eventually opened um, the front door and the back door and actually managed to get it out through the front door in the end of the house. I was going to say, I got tips if you had like the leather gloves, the towels. No, because at the same time, there was myself chasing it, my husband chasing it, and the cat chasing it too. Because so, oh, no. Rambo was still going after this thing, trying to catch it, honestly. So he carried it in through a cat door? More like dragged it through the cat flap, yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's crazy. Rambo sounds like one of a kind. Yes. He's got like he a really little machine gun was- around his back. Oh, I've got so many stories. So many stories about that cat. <laughs> and he looked both ways before he crossed the road, which I found that amusing every single day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Chickens are easier. I like the suggestion of approaching this as looking for an avian vet instead of just yeah. looking for a poultry vet. Yes. I think that's really smart. In fact, the vet that I've been using lately bills herself as an avian vet. And so does mine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so... Avian usually covers a lot of stuff. Or if you can find an exotics vet, some vets yes. are la- labeled That's as exotics. Yes. Yeah. They treat everything also. So Holly Ann was digging and did some research, which we helped one of our listeners out. Do you want to tell them the name? Sure. It's a website. It's the Association of Avian Veterinarians. I'm not sure how long it's been up because I have not stumbled across it before. Essentially, they are a worldwide database of veterinarians 
You choose your country, you put postal code in, they list all the veterinarians in your area who treat poultry slash avian. Ours were on there. Oh, both of our vets were on there. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so it's a really good idea. The other thing that we wanted to mention, which would be a really good idea, is you go on this website, you find the vets that are closest to you, and then just to do a well visit first yeah. so that you have your foot yeah. in the door with a veterinarian so that when you have a problem, you have a relationship with this veterinarian and you're not a first-time client. Absolutely. We have a real example of that. And that is when my Brahma Hen Eclair got sick, I called my second choice avian vet. <laughs> we called them. as my first choice avian vet was out of town. I called the second choice avian vet. They could not fit anyone in called Chrissy's avian vet. They were not taking new clients. Right. And so I was lucky enough on the fourth to find a vet that, frankly, she's going to be my number one avian vet from now on. But the problem there was your hospital was not taking new people. And if I had at least one wellness visit with them, I would have been able to get in the door. Yeah, because they'll get you in and they had gotten me in like a week before. So it's good to have that relationship. Yeah, it's about trust as well, though, because yeah. there's, there's a certain element of you want your animal to be cared for as well. And you yes. have to feel confident in the person who's seeing them. Yeah, definitely. And that's not always the case. Right, right. Unfortunately. Yeah, you can have terrible, terrible experiences with a veterinarian. Not that there's anything wrong with them, but sometimes personalities just don't mesh. Right. And it can go yeah. very badly wrong. Right. Fortunately for me, I've worked with my veterinarians before and I love them. I always say they could treat me. I'd be like, okay, treat me. <laughs> so it's good to have them and know. And I have multiple vets at multiple hospitals also so that you have places to go. The thing about chickens and veterinarians these days, chickens are not just livestock at this point. There right. are pets. So we have to be able to medically take care of them. Yes. And sometimes they're going to need medicine. Right. A lot of veterinarians are starting to regard them as companion animals and rightly yes, so. Exactly. So yeah, very much so. Being able to get a prescription that you normally just can't buy over the counter may be the thing that helps you save them. So that's always a good idea. If you go on this website and you can't find a vet in your area, a lot of the universities also may have poultry experts. That's a really good idea. And don't wait to make the call. Don't wait to make these calls until there's something wrong with one of your birds and you are freaking out. I've been there and done that. And I've you been don't there and done be, that. Yeah, that's not a position you want to be in if you yeah. can't avoid it. I mean, there's so many of the communicable diseases as well that the avian population can get yes. are so similar in the symptoms, but you don't know what they are. Some of them can spread very, very quickly, you know, like avian influenza that we've just been through all of these prevention measures in the UK. I mean, that was a, I think, 24 to 48 hour time period from right. pure health to actually keeling over, unfortunately. Right. So being able to recognize it and be able to track someone down who can say it is or it isn't or it's something else is right. just valuable, absolutely invaluable. It really is. Having 20 years of experience keeping chickens, there are a lot of things that I can treat myself because in the beginning, I sort of had to until my large animal vet started treating chickens. I was kind of on my own and I probably lost some chickens because of that. I mean, I was just talking about Eclair and Eclair had a crop problem and I did all the things I would normally do to treat a crop with a mild blockage and sour crop as well, but it wouldn't clear. We went to day three and I couldn't get the infection to clear. And I knew it was time to get her to a professional because what she needed was a cytology. 
Dr. Rebecca took a swab of the crop contents, looked at it on a microscope and determined that she had a double infection, yeast and bacteria. That's not something I could have done on my own. Do you think there's a reluctance to go to the vet, though? I mean, I, I do see quite a few people who say they don't want to go down that route because the chicken yes. and the cost five pounds or ten dollars or, or whatever. There's, but there's other people who it's almost like they're admitting defeat because they see everybody yes. else treating. I the agree animals with themselves. you there. I think so too. Yeah, I totally agree. And the thing that we understand is with chickens, and as they become more and more popular, we understand them more and their personalities and their intelligence is that they feel when a chicken dies in their flock, they mourn. Absolutely. So after seeing these things, people are learning they're much more than a livestock. They are pets and we need to be able to get the prescription drugs that we need to to treat them in certain circumstances. Well, frankly, speaking as someone who has always had a farm vet, a lot of people are quicker to call the vet for livestock than they are for their chicken. It's almost as if chickens fall in this no man's land. I agree because like if you have cattle or horse or yes. sheep, people put them on a different level than right. the chickens. Which yes. I, I never even thought about that until you just said that. Yes, I kind of t- really agree with you there. And they kind of fall in their own category. They do. And I wonder why. They're kind of coming out of it now because they are now backyard friends right, right. and pets versus just livestock. And even within the livestock community, there's some divide there. For instance, my veterinarian, Dr. Wells, who's been our vet for 20 years, he treats companion animals. Right. So his clients have sheep that are their pets, horses that are beloved. They're very much companion animals. And he does treat chickens if necessary. But it was always interesting to me to see that difference between it's livestock, right? But it's livestock that people regard as pets and family compared to livestock that people are looking at as food. Yeah, I think that might be the difference a little bit there. So they're taking a turn and they're becoming more into our hearts. So if you're adopting an animal, any animal, check out the doctor side of it, the veterinarians, to see if you have a problem, you have assistance. There are some innovations here uh, that I've noticed here in the UK, because over in the US, when we've been having a little coffee off the podcast sessions, um, we've been chatting about this uh, 24-hour animal hospitals over in the US. Yes. That's something which I think is a bit rarer over here in the UK. Okay. But what I have noticed is when I was doing the latest research just for this podcast to see what was available now, is that there's online diagnostics available with qualified veterinary nurses and qualified vets as well that you can just call up and get access to one of those either through a pay-as-you-go service or a premium subscription service. Clearly, they're going to be a little bit limited because the vet's right. not got the hands on your chicken. Right. But, you know, that if they've got respiratory issues, they could hear the rattling of, of the voice. They could see any discharge from the mouth or right. bubbling at the eyes or, right. you know, anything like that, which is visible. So they could give you an idea. And I believe they can send prescriptions through the post to your home. But clearly, you've got to wait for that to come through. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a great a, alternative. It's a great new innovation. Yeah, it's, it's almost as good as our GPs online now. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I'm saying, like, I think there is a turn, especially, you know, in the chicken world here, because so many people are really understanding them more as an animal and yeah. knowing that they give out right. so much that they're not just that $4 to $20 chicken. 
their beloved part of the family. And that's why we always say, check out the vets around you before you even start so that you can see. Yeah. I'm going to pull us back to where we were with colleges and universities. And Fiona, you can tell yeah. us if this is similar in the UK, but we're definitely seeing more research on chickens in the colleges and universities that aren't just meat bird focused. And so what Christy was saying is an excellent idea. If you can't find a vet, call a local veterinary college or university and ask them if they run clinics or if they have anyone who's doing avian specialty that's willing to take on your bird. It's funny you should say that because I've actually been asked to provide noises that the broody hens make to their chicks and while they're brooding to a postgraduate research student who's actually studying um, chicken language. That's fantastic. That's awesome. There is a lot more research and interest in chickens in the university environment. Yeah. And I'm hoping that that is going to lead to veterinarians coming out of school, having the chance to understand the chicken and how to help them and their different diseases and their different ailments that they get so that we as people who have chickens can go to a vet and they might know more about it. It's a step in the right direction. That's for sure. There are some really, really good chicken vets here in the UK. But there's also some where you go to the veterinary office also who say, I'm sorry, we don't deal with chickens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happens. I mean, one of our suggestions is if you find someone who is an avian vet, but they haven't dealt with poultry, try to campaign a little bit. I mean, in some ways, a crop is a crop. Yeah. Exactly. Foot, you know, the bones are similar. It's worth a try. It's worth asking if you can learn together, work together and see if they'll start taking on chickens. Because let's face it, I think once an avian vet starts treating poultry, there's probably no end of patience for them. Yeah, that's the number one thing is the popularity of the chicken yeah. right now is huge. So just going into small animal practices can definitely be a plus. That's for sure. Calling around. Fiona has some great tips for our listeners in the UK. There's 24-hour vet lines where you can talk to a veterinary nurse, a veterinarian, if you need assistance that way. Those are big steps in finding the vet. Yeah. And the number one thing to remember is have a relationship with this vet, hopefully before there's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But also... Do your best to cover yourself with biosecurity control so that you don't necessarily have to have a vet. So you're only dealing then with things which are brought in from wild birds or you're dealing with first aid issues or physical injuries. Most of the issues in terms of diseases with chickens are brought in from other chickens or from people who've had contact with other chickens. Right. You'll never get rid of the risks from wild birds if you've got free range birds. There's, There's nothing you can do about that yeah, if you want right. them running around your field or your garden but you can vastly reduce your risk by having foot baths outside of your poultry areas asking people if they have chickens themselves and then asking them not to go into your chicken area unless they will scrub their boots for example it, it's a simple measure makes such a difference and things like on your end don't wear your chicken boots to someone else's farm Yeah, we're back and forth all the time. I have a different pair of shoes that I wear at her house. Yep, likewise. We try not to take anything back. We are very careful about it. Mm -hmm. But realistically speaking, we generally run on the assumption that if one flock has it, the other one will too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
the biggest biosecurity control we have on our site actually is we never bring an adult bird onto the site. Now, I appreciate that not everyone can do that because unless you're willing to hatch or breed chickens, that's not going to be possible. But for us, it means we're not bringing in the risk of a disease or anything infectious from another flock because we only ever hatch here. That's perfect. It really is. Over here, the one-day chick, they're in a brooder. They have to be in a warm area. So they're going to be away from your flock. Like we were talking about integration last time. Right. For at least six plus weeks, that's time for something to show if it's going to show and kind of see where they're going to go before they go in. And even then, poultry specialists will advise you to take care of the babies last so that you're doing all of your existing birds. And then you're doing the newcomers last. So you're not going back out in the same clothing. That's and exactly what I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's a good lesson in that actually as well for older birds. If you're bringing in point of lays, so older adult birds into an adult flock, it's quarantine them. Even if it's only for a few days, just give yourself a chance to work out if something's wrong that you need to keep them away for longer or get them treated before they're introduced right. to the flock. For sure. And we always say, that's what Holly and I always were talking about, was like at least a few weeks, like if you can, a month. Oh, absolutely. A to month keep, if you can. You know, if you can, keep them in a pop-up or something separate completely away. So, well, that's where we're lucky because I have a family farm four miles away from my place. So we can park any birds we need that's to fantastic. in one of the coops there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we did with I the rest I of I wish I had that. <laughs> I know most people do not have that. I, and I know we're seriously lucky that we do, but it, it really is fantastic. I get lots Great. of messages from people who have brought adult birds in and they've got chicken lice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's so common. Chicken lice are so, so common. It is. And I get lots of messages from people saying that my flock didn't have lice. And of course, my first question is, have you recently bought any more chickens? Right. Nine times out of 10, the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Yes. That's what we say. The handy dandy pop up, you can get on four or five feet by four or five feet. I know that sounds weird saying it like that, but. You can put them in your garage, in a different area, and keep them completely separate. Right. And that way you have the time and space to watch them so that they're not going in that other area. But then say you do that, your chicken does have something wrong. The vet is going to come in and potentially be a good relationship to help you fix these birds. Right. So one of the reasons we think having a vet for your chicken is so important, other than the obvious, is that even if you're an experienced chicken keeper veterinarians have things that most of us don't have. Yep. X-rays, diagnostic tools, access to labs, they can run blood work, all of these things. Like my doctor did the cytology of Eclair's crop contents to figure out what was going on in there. A simple stool sample, if you're having some issues, to check for parasites, (laughs) number one, tells you a lot. It It tells you, you know, they do. So (laughs) diagnostically, vets have so much. The second thing is, Prescription-wise, yes. drugs yes. that you can't get to help your bird, they can get you. Right. They might be a little stronger. And they can the advise cat. what's licensed for poultry as well. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, they'll tell you if this is, I don't know if you use the same term in the UK, but here they'll tell you this is an off-label drug. Right. So it's not listed yes. for poultry, but we're going to use it in this circumstance because it is the correct drug for this problem. This is what we always say. The vet's the magician with all the tools in his hat. <laughs> well, and he yeah. can pull them or out as hat. needed. Or her hat, sorry. That's okay. They can help you when you have gotten to the point where what you're doing isn't working, right. or even before that point, 
I will definitely call that every time. I've mentioned it three times in this conversation because it's it's been the most recent and really scary medical issue we've had. And that was my, my Brahma Eclair with yeah. the crop problem. I would have lost her without Dr. Rebecca's help. I, I, have, I have zero doubt of that. I know I would have. And she needed surgery in the end, didn't she? So, she did. She did. She yeah. needed surgery and then she needed extended courses of antibiotics and anti-yeast and a lot of TLC. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think with crop issues, very few new chicken owners realize that crop issues can get that far. And I think it's important to know that someone like yourself who's so experienced with chickens had a chicken with a crop issue that needed surgery in the end. Right. And there's mm-hmm. nothing you could have done to prevent it. No. It's just nope. it's just one of those things. It is. It just happened. And I will say I picked up a new skill because the amount of medication that needed to go into her, I needed to tube her for it. So really? essentially we bought, yes, we bought a parrot tube feeding kit and I learned how to tube feed down into the crop. Wow. I mean, I could medicate with a syringe, but literally we had to tube her before we gave her her medication twice a day because it was such an enormous amount. Wow. And thank you again, Dr. Rebecca, because that was a scary time. Yeah. yeah so I imagine. Mean, the other thing is we don't want to discourage people thinking that your poultry veterinary care is going to make you broke. Oh, cost a fortune. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so... Take that time. I mean, usually you can get an exam for $30 here in the U.S. Yeah. And then they can help you with some medications. And right. things aren't going to always cost a lot. So know that you're not going to break the bank by going to the veterinarian for assistance. In your experience, both of you, have you found that veterinary care for poultry has been more or less expensive than veterinary care for a dog or cat? Mine is Don't less. Don't ask me because we're a bit cheeky because we have friends who help <laughs> okay. us with it. Fair enough. <laughs> I have found that veterinary care for a chicken is definitely less expensive than a dog or cat. I agree. And I will tell you, generally, large animal care is less expensive than a dog or cat. And it has been on par to or less expensive than large animal care to have my poultry treated. So when you go to the vet, they're going to take into consideration their prices. They always have a price list. And yeah. what they will is they price accordingly. So you're going in with your chicken. It's not going to cost you the same as your dog. Right. So don't be afraid to walk in the door that you're going to be spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Right. They can help you inexpensively. Yeah. So don't be afraid. That's the number one thing to remember because sometimes I believe that people are afraid that's going to cost a lot. And that's a reason yeah. not to go to the doctors. Yeah veterinarians understand the difference, you know, between the two, like a dog, a cat and a chicken. So they're going to price accordingly, which is very good. Right. You know, right. And don't be afraid to ask about the prices either. Yeah. Yeah. Before they say we're going to run all these tests, I've done it myself. Can you tell me about how much that's going to cost? And they will tell you point blank. And then you can make a decision on what you want to do. So, you know, you'll know exactly how much you're going to spend. It's nothing to be afraid of. Go in and search your area right. and get a vet that can help you. But again, it can drastically cut down on your mortality rate. If you hit a brick wall and it's something you can't fix, maybe they can't. Maybe they've seen it. And your stress. Yeah. You know? It's, you can't it's, underestimate that. Yeah. It's like I mean, you know, we, I mean, we've mentioned this before, haven't we, in previous conversations. When something goes wrong, that panic sets in and yes. it's the worst time to be making decisions. It really so is. So having it all ready, all prepared, knowing where you're going, knowing what access you've got to them, it's just completely invaluable. And again, there are vets who won't see an animal for an emergency if they haven't seen them previously for at least a wellness visit. 
So that's just something yeah. to keep in mind. Yeah, just call and say, what's your policy? I want to be a new client. Are you taking new clients? If so, can I schedule a visit? And then that way, if something comes about, you have somewhere to go and someone to help you. We've always say like we get a lot of questions and comments from listeners needing help. We will help you any way we can with our experience. Right. But there are certain things that are very hard to tell via video or pictures. So having that vet there to help you in person can help you. But yeah, Yeah. if you have any questions, don't hesitate. All three of us are very honest as well about there is a certain point at which we'll say we are not veterinary professionals. Right. So, well, with with the exception of Chrissy, who has the experience. Right. Well, I will say retired. I'm not a professional. I think you may need to seek professional advice. Yeah. I'm very honest about that. But I mean, normally I just go through a series of standard questions. Are you seeing any other symptoms? What's are you observing their behavior? If you look here, are you seeing this type of thing? And just right. gathering information and then it will be either a quick fix because it's something obvious, like chicken life. Or it's a case of that could be any number of things and that's going to need a professional to diagnose. Personally, anything that is breathing related or anything that is egg related, I would prefer to send that straight to a vet, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Normally I ask if there's other symptoms like discharge from the eyes or nose or bubbling or those types of things. But it's always, as soon as those are gathered, it's normally trying to get the person who's asking me the question to think about these other things. And then it's a case of you really need to go to a vet. Right. Yeah, right. Because respiratory issues, as you know, it could be there's a whole raft of things so many, that could be. Yes. So many different things. Yeah. And sometimes you need that vet to listen to them. Absolutely. So we'll leave everybody with investigate your neighborhood, figure out if there's a vet that will help you. Do it before there's a problem. That's the number one key. Yes. The second is be prepared. We've talked about this multiple times with your own first aid kit. So that it's something that you can handle and treat in the very beginning until you can get there or just treat yourself, you're prepared. So being prepared with the proper things and with the proper knowledge of your veterinarians in your area can be key. Right. The last thing is a chicken buddy, someone that you can call or message that is in your community that's a friend of yours that also has chickens. Hey, this is happening. Have you ever seen this before? They might say, yeah, I took my chicken to the vet for that or, hey, try this. I think that's really important. So you know that if there is something that is not clearing for you, it's not necessarily a death sentence. Ask your chicken buddy what they think. If they think it's time for a vet, you should probably go for a vet. Yeah, definitely. It's not necessarily the end of the road just because you can't help a chicken get better. Try to get those other resources lined up. Well, Fiona, thank you for talking to us today. We love talking to you. We do. <laughs> I really like these round tables. I think they're, they're really interesting for me as well to understand the differences between the US and the UK. Yeah. But it's just lovely to get somebody else's perspective because I don't know everything. I'm not pretending I know everything. And That's all of know, us. Just all learning us. so much about it. That's yeah. all of us. You Absolutely. know, I always say you don't know something until it actually happens to you. You can kind of read up and say, if this were to happen, I would do this. But until you experience a health issue or something, you don't really know what you're going to do or, you know, right. you can read. But so talking like that, I love talking like this. And Fiona has become such a cherished friend of ours. I actually love just our little happy coffee hours as friends too, you know. I'm you know, you it, all a virtual hug from across the Yes, ocean. likewise. Yes. <laughs> so 
we are going to sign off for now until next time Fiona joins us, which will be very soon because we're going to be talking about Brittany. Well, yeah, we'll we'll be able to do this report recording in person, hopefully. Oh my class. God. Can you imagine how awesome that, that would be? Amazing. That would be so much fun. That would be so much fun. All right, Fiona, we will talk to you next week when we get the Broody update. Yay! Yay! Bye! Bye. Talk to you later. So are we ready to move on? Yes, indeed. To cracking the eggs. Yes. So this week, we're going to talk about not so much a recipe, but a way of entertaining that's popular these days. We're going to talk about a charcuterie board. But it's not just meats and cheeses. We're expanding it to include lots of egg options. Yes. We have pictures up on our Instagram page from our garden party where we did a deviled egg charcuterie board. Now, charcuterie, if you look it up, it's going to be charred meat. That is the fancy name for a snack tray that everybody's doing these days. Snack tray. It does. I mean, charcuterie board sounds so much more elegant, especially if you're you're having drinks with it. I always use it like for a happy hour, Uh like just friends, even outside. Yeah. And the eggs can take over the protein section of it. Absolutely. So if you want to do a vegetarian charcuterie board, the eggs are the way to go. Definitely they are. And they can look so pretty on the board. You can do it in so many different ways. So we've done multiple recipes, I think three or four about deviled eggs. Yeah, we did deviled eggs five ways. If you check our recipes on our website, you'll find the listing in there. Right. And there's actually probably 50 ways that you could do deviled eggs. Yeah. So you can be as creative as you want with toppings on your deviled eggs, things inside the deviled eggs, seasonings. You can get super fancy and pipe the filling in there if you want to. Yeah. And setting the charcuterie board up is so much fun. Google this. You can go to Pinterest and look. And some of those boards are like works of art. I have boards that are, my board is charcuterie boards because I just love looking at them. Yeah. So the deviled eggs, it's great for a brunch. Yeah. We were looking up to other stuff too where people use scrambled eggs on the board. That was fascinating. For brunch. Yeah. And the other thing is you can add lots of stuff to complement it. Right. And you can be really, really creative. Yeah. You can add things like fruits. <laughs> You can put it towards what you're doing. So if you're doing a happy hour or or brunch. I like the idea of composing the board based on your meal or your time of day. Yeah. I suppose you could even do it based on the drinks you're serving, something like that. Yes, you could definitely do that. You could do so much with it and put your creativity in it. And then the board itself is another aspect of the creativity. Yeah. So I've seen people basically do the top of a table. Oh, wow. As a charcuterie board. I guess the sky's the limit with creativity. You can put all kinds of things on there. Yeah. Right down to edible flowers. It would be cool. But, you know, this is the best thing. Like, if you're a vegetarian, your protein being the eggs. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some fun things we could put on this board to go with eggs? Cheese, obviously, because cheese is always amazing. And bread. Uh, some bread and a good olive tapenade. Yes, yeah. exactly. I always use a fig spread. Ooh, that sounds amazing. Which would go great, which you can add to the cheese and the bread. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, you know what? You could add some of the salt-cured egg yolks. Yes. And you have done that and the recipe is in our show notes. Well, it'll be linked to our website. Awesome. Yeah. So you could do those. You mentioned the scrambled eggs. That was really fascinating to me. Hey, I just got an idea. If you did scrambled eggs, you could do tortillas and make breakfast burrito charcuterie board. That would be delicious. I'm just saying like your brain, once you get one thing, uh-huh. it kind of can roll with it yeah. with the charcuterie board. That's really the whole creative. point of it. That brings me back to the episode where we did retail therapy on deviled egg dishes. Right. And where we read that deviled eggs really became popular in the 1930s, the right. 1950s to serve with cocktails. Right. So it just seems really perfect. That you could put it on there. Uh-huh. 
And then you could do nuts or fruit or grapes or whatever with these things to complement it to go with your drink. And like you said, you could have a signature drink that goes with the board. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I love that. Like just being creative. I want to get a bigger board. Now okay. I have like the slab that we all have seen. It looks like a natural slab of tree. I like it, yeah. but I would like one double the size. Wow. Because I think it's cool. Plus you want to have room, especially this day and age, for little toothpicks. So the people aren't putting their fingers on it. Yes, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always done that. The other thing is I have small Pyrex bowls. Uh-huh. I mean, really small, like ramekin size yeah. that I put on there and put different stuff. So you can build it up. You can make it so pleasing to the eye. Yeah, like I said, I've looked on Pinterest and there are some boards on there that are just works of art. They are. They're so gorgeous. Like you could use like one board and then you could use a small cake plate tiered in the middle. And then do a top and then come down and do all different kinds of stuff around and under level, Uh uh-huh. Which would look so cool. That would be really cool. Yeah. And the thing is, your eyes see things first. We've said this. Chicken wine, you see the label, you buy it. Right. You see something that looks beautiful, you want to eat it. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh my God, this is so cool. Uh So we just wanted to throw that out there. Have some fun this summer. Throw a happy hour. We're going to be hopefully throwing a happy hour soon. Yeah. A chicken happy hour. A chicken happy hour. That would be really good. And we're going to put another charcuterie board out there. Yeah. Maybe we should come up with a drink to go with it. Oh, yeah. Signature drink would uh-huh. be great. That would be really fun. We should do it. This is how our brainstorming it. happens. <laughs> so are we ready to move on to retail therapy? Retail therapy. Yeah. Yeah. We are ready to move on. So retail therapy, I'm going to talk about something I've been using for a long time now. Spalding fly predators. Okay. Have you ever heard of them? I've heard of them through you. Okay. So, I mean, you were talking to me about that you use them. I do not use them. I need to use something. So the great thing about them is that they're a fantastic alternative to chemicals and sprays. Which is awesome. Yeah. And and they really work to keep your fly population down. It's not going to go down to zero. You're not going to get rid of every fly. Yeah. Flies do have a job as unpleasant as it is. Yeah. So they're not going to go away completely. So essentially, the little teeny insect eats the flies when they're still in the cocoon. Right. Eats the developing fly. Right. Right. So they cut down on the population that way. They only last a few weeks. So they only, they live for a few weeks and then die off themselves? Yeah. So the way this works is, let's say you wanted to do this. When Pete and I set up our little farmette, we went to Spalding Lab's website and you, there's like a form you fill out and you put in the number of animals that you have right. and the type of animal you have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had five sheep and we had 20 chickens and they give you a recommendation for the size okay. of fly predators you should have sent to you. So we get our number and then you set it up so that they send them to you monthly. Okay. And the way it works, the fly predators arrive in the little package, you open them up and they're sealed in kind of a plastic bag so you can see them. Okay. And you wait until about a dozen of them have hatched and are moving. And then you take them out and you sprinkle them around. Where your chickens can't get them. Yes, you definitely want to do it where your chickens can't get them. Because they will eat them. That would be chicken candy. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to hurt them. Just oh, let's no, just no. Gotta put that out there. It's not going to hurt them if they eat it. But no, it would just like it would just be the like same eating as, a bug. Exactly. But so you want them away from your chickens, but not too far. They fly about 150 feet. Right. But the closer you can get them to fly sources, the better. So mm-hmm. like if you have a compost pile, you want to put it there. 
we or have, the entire chicken running coop because there's chicken poo all in there. Yes. And that's fly targets. Any places where flies would be laying their eggs is where <laughs> you want to put them. Yeah. It's not very elegant or romantic, but boy, is it practical. Yeah. And it really cuts down on having to use fly repellents and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. So they're fantastic that way. I've noticed in the summer, like I try to plant some stuff around my chicken run and coop, like herbs try to keep them down that might be repelling yeah yeah and it naturally kind of repels i can't stand it when the flies get in the coop i just i clean my coop like once a week me too but in the summer i sometimes do it twice a week because the chicken poop is what attracts them exactly so you got to get it out of there yeah the heat just makes everything rev up it smells more but these seem like this is a very safe way to there's really no downside to it that i've ever seen yeah, if it's I'm, just a little bug. I mean, does the bugs don't bite you or no, anybody else? the bugs else? don't mess with you. They don't bother your animals at all. They're really tiny. They're tiny little things. Yeah. It's no inconvenience whatsoever. They do a great job. Once you set up the subscription with Spalding, they send you a notification that they're about to charge your credit card. Okay. And then you have the bugs in the mail about a week later. I want to say in July, they send a double order every July. Well, I'm sure July is probably one of the worst months. Exactly, since that's the peak month. So you get charged twice for July. I want to say they charge you for the double order. You would think they would because they're giving you more stuff. But like you said, you might have to agree to that when you sign the contract. Yeah, you would definitely have to agree to it ahead of time. Plus, they email you before your order goes out. So in case there's any problem. Right. You can say, I don't want it or whatever. But that time of the year, the double order is really fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So all things considered, like I said, we've used this on the farm. So the horses, llamas, and alpacas on our place with the sheep and the chickens. And I swear by them. Yeah. So what's an average price, do you think, per month that you would pay? I think that we pay around $25 a month. Okay. And the subscriptions only go like from, is it April or May? Yeah. The first shipment comes out in April. I think it depends on your region too. Yeah. But in the Mid-Atlantic, first shipment's April. Yeah. And the last one is either September or October. And I honestly cannot remember. Yeah. Uh, Part of the reason I can't remember is it's just an automatic. I set up the subscription every year. They do their thing. They take Mm -hmm. care of it. It's really easy. It sounds like a good idea. If you have any large number of animals and fly issues, I feel like it's unbeatable. Oh, yeah. All natural, no chemicals. Well, last summer was the first summer with both flocks. So it was even more. Yep. So, I mean, it's, I hate those flies too. I can't stand it when they're inside the coop. I like try to kill them all. And I saw, I never thought of this because I guess I'm just slow on the draw, but I saw where some people were putting them in their coop. I mean, like you mentioned, don't let your chickens eat them. Not because it's going to hurt them, but because they're going to eat all the fly predators. But some folks have been smart and they put cups or bowls or bags with the fly predators in them Mm -hmm. up on the rafters in their coop above where the chickens can get them. Mm -hmm. And there you go, right there in the coop. That's my main concern. Like outside, it's annoyance, but you can kind of deal with it better. I feel so bad for them in the coop. Yeah. That's why I'm always out there. I almost clean it like every other day in the summer. I do the same thing. I'm constantly cleaning in the summer. And if, yeah. I'm, doing a, if I'm not doing a full clean, I'm at least scraping out a bit. Oh, throwing yeah. Throwing bedding in there. The other thing I've done is I take just regular vinegar uh-huh. and put it in a spray bottle and then put some herbs in it or some vanilla. That's a good idea. Or some orange peels with uh-huh. it. And just spray down the roosting bars and everything and keep them super clean. Vinegar is an excellent disinfectant. Yeah, just it is. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about it. It's completely natural. Right. And I just try to just clean where their feet are constantly. Because, you know, when they come up on the roosting bar, they might have 
poop on their feet. Mud, whatever. Exactly. Yep. So just keeping it super clean. This seems like a great idea. It's great. Uh, I really feel terrible for the sheep when the flies oh, start yeah. to bother them. Even more than the chickens. They were the reason we were going yeah. for these, but it benefits both of them. The chicken should just eat them all. You would think so. <laughs> Have you ever seen your chickens run after flies? No. Just plain old flies, me either. Not they really. They taste good. Like little gnats and stuff, they chase like crazy. Yeah. But flies, I've not seen them yeah. go after flies. Flies and stink bugs, they don't have much interest. They're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They probably don't taste very good. <laughs> They're like, nah, nah. Okay, so should we tell everybody what we're going to be talking about next week? Sure thing. Next week, we are talking about another American breed. Of course. The dot. Yay! Our main topic is all about eggs. We're going to talk about what they're made of, how they're formed. Yes. Cracking the eggs is our fancy composed cob salad. Yes. Uh, retail therapy is chicken bathing suits. Yes, they exist. We've already checked them out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so and don't expect any pictures of us in these either. Hell no. <laughs> so until next time. What should we tell everybody? Hug your chickens. Every day and kiss them too. Don't forget. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to see more of us, please follow us on Instagram at Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help us grow the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to become a patron of the show so that we can bring you even more high-quality chicken content, please visit our Patreon page patreon.com slash coffee with the chicken ladies. Thanks for listening.